I'd like to invite you to come back to your seats. We're going to get started. I'd like to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest. We're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. I'm going to go ahead and pray again for our time and that uh, God would move amongst us this morning. And then uh, we'll jump in, uh, jump into the sermon. Father, I just ask that as we open your word now, that we would um, truly believe that it is your word. It's your words, it's your revelation to us, revealing who you are and what you have done on our behalf. I pray as we walk through this passage this morning that we would submit ourselves to your word, that we would allow it to change our minds and change our hearts and change the way we live when we leave this place, and ultimately that you would receive glory and honor for our time together. We love you. It's for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today is the first Sunday in this Advent sermon series we're walking through. Um, And we're going to be spending the next four weeks in the first part of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And if you didn't know, Advent simply means arrival. So when you hear the term Advent, it just simply means arrival. And we're kind of preparing for the arrival of Jesus. That's what we're observing, Christmas. And I love Christmas. Like, I'm a, I'm a sucker for all the things that come with Christmas. It's my favorite holiday. I love the nostalgia. I love the lights. I love everything that goes along with Christmas. I just love it. I just get sucked into all of it. And I know some of you aren't that way, but I think some of you are, and you can follow along with me here. Um, and even if you don't, love Christmas or it's not your favorite holiday, I think we're all living in this culture. So I think this is kind of what it feels like oftentimes. You have Thanksgiving, then the next day is, if, now if, if, if you were really aggressive, you put your lights and decorations up before Thanksgiving, but I withheld that. I, I held back this year. So Thanksgiving happens, then you have Black Friday. And Black Friday happens, then you have, you gotta get those decorations up, those lights on that following weekend, hopefully. And then you have Cyber Monday or Cyber Cyber Tuesday, whatever Amazon decides that year. Then you have Christmas shopping, okay? And then you have Christmas parties. And then you get the flu. And then you finally make it to Christmas Eve. And you maybe get to to stop and and kind of rest and and relax a little bit. Maybe spend time with your family, hopefully. If you have kids, you're not going to get any sleep. Um, Then you have Christmas Day, where hopefully... Again, you focus on Jesus a little bit, you're able to spend time with family, truly enjoy the holiday. And then if you you don't understand the etiquette of Christmas decorations, you take your decorations down on the 26th. I feel bad for you, I'm sorry. They should be left up till January 2nd, we know that, okay? So let's just say you leave them up till January 2nd, you have the first, that's fun. But on January 2nd, those, those decorations are coming down, and then it... It's back to business as usual. 
And if you are a reflective person at all, every year about that time, I think back and I just think of what happened. What just happened with the last month? This huge buildup, this huge holiday, very important for the church, very important for our faith. And then it just comes and it goes so quickly. So here's my, my prayer and hope for us over the next three or, or, or four weeks. It's that we would, would stop, we would focus, we would observe and think about Jesus. He would be our attention. He would get our attention. He would be our focus. He would be the one that we would think about most during this time of year. We wouldn't let the other noise get in the way of what we're celebrating. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, my prayer for you is that over the next four weeks, or even just today, that you would, you would see who Jesus truly is and what we are truly celebrating for these, this month or so. And that the noise wouldn't distract you and confuse you about who Jesus truly is and what God's grace truly looks like found in the person and work of Jesus. So my prayer for you is that all that noise would be cut back and you would truly be able to see um, the gift God has given us in Jesus. So let's look at Isaiah 9 now. God tells Isaiah, this prophet, Old Testament, he tells him to tell God, what I'm about to say to tell you. This is what a prophet does. He, he communicates the message of God to the people. Verse 2 in chapter 9 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And this is probably a familiar verse to, to many of you. Um, but if we just start here and quickly move to the birth narrative of Jesus, we miss so much. Like what is truly going on in this context that causes um, God to tell Isaiah to tell God's people this particular verse that we love so much? So I want to go back a little bit and set some context for Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to go back to Genesis 3.15 and start with this, because this is really where Christmas starts. This is really where the, profe- the prophecy of Jesus' birth begins right here. Genesis 3.15. This is right after the fall. Sin comes into the world. God is is pronouncing a curse on the serpent for what he has done to bring about the fall. God says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, this Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning that God telling the serpent, Jesus is going to crush your head one day. He's going to put it into you. He's going to end your power. He's going to end your influence. He's going to end your reign on the earth. That will happen. And yes, you're going to hurt him. You're going to hurt him. You're going to cause him to suffer. But ultimately, I'm going to send one who's going to end your reign of evil on the earth. And this is what God is telling us in the third chapter of the Bible. He's talking about this time of really what we begin to celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus. And every, typically last several years, um, there's this picture that comes across um, this time of year. And and I've put it up here today. Um, I think it's a a really awesome, like moving picture. Go ahead and throw that, that slide up. Hopefully it's in there. 
look at that for a second. So on the left, you have Eve, the serpent around her legs. And she's obviously, say she's scared, guilty, shameful. This is obviously after um, Genesis 3, sin has come into the world. And then on the right, you have Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus. And if you had a, a bubble that popped out of what Mary was saying to Eve, I think it would probably go something like, it's okay. Don't be guilty. Don't feel shame. My son, my boy, he is going to make things right. He's going to redeem you. He's going to work all things for the good, even what just happened to you and Adam. He's going to make things right. And so I think just that picture just sums up so much in looking ahead to who Jesus is. And going all the way back to Genesis 3, this is where the Christmas story begins. You can go ahead and take that down. So here's the context specifically of Isaiah chapter 9, what's happening before. So God's people, the Israelites, have not been honoring God. They've been rebelling against him. They haven't been loving him. And he causes the Assyrian army, the, one of the most powerful nations on earth at the time, to come up to their doorstep and they're threatening to come in and, and conquer Israel. And God is doing this. God is causing this to happen. And he knows when the Assyrian army gets close to the walls of the cities of Israel and begins to, to, to form their attack and attack is, is imminent, the people are going to panic. The Israelites will panic. They will turn to something to save them because when you have the most powerful army that's been wiping out nations as they get closer to you, you're fearful. You're scared. And God knows, he knows Israel's hearts. He knows they're going to look to other things because that's been the pattern of them for so long at this point. So again, he tells Isaiah to tell Israel this, verse 19 in chapter 8. So just a few verses but before chapter 9. He says this, <coughs> God's telling uh, Isaiah, And when they, um, Israel, say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, If they will not speak according to this word, It is because they have no dawn. They have no light. This will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. Verse 22, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So uh, the Israelites see the Assyrian army outside their walls. And they haven't been walking with God. God causes this situation to happen. And then they begin to turn to other things. My translation translates as necromancers and mediums. What this really is are, are spiritists, spiritists, fortune tellers, people who communicate with the dead. The, the, these types of people, Israel is seeking for help, for salvation. And the scripture says they are looking towards the earth, to human resources to get them out of their problem. They're looking to their experts, their mystics, their scholars for solutions. 
And they're saying, yes, we're in darkness. We get that. We've, we, we're, we're awake now. We get it. We're about to be destroyed. But we're gonna, we can figure this out ourselves. They're looking inside and they're looking to other humans to help save them, to help overcome this. And today, people would make the same claim. When we get in these situations, we look to the government. Some maybe look to the marketplace. We all look to technology to some degree. Self-help gurus, political pundits, new age spirituality. When things go wrong in our life, we're looking for help. We're looking for experts. And so God says to Isaiah that um, when, if, if they continue to do these kinds of things and they ask you to participate with them, is what they're which is what they're asking Isaiah to do. Tell him no. Tell him to stop looking at the things that have no power to get you out of this mess. These things aren't going to give you salvation, which is ultimately what Israel wants. They want to be saved. And because Israel is responding in this way, God uses this mighty Assyrian army um, to thrust them into distress and darkness. So this is the darkness that the Assyrians find themselves in. The Assyrians are on the edge of their city. And just imagine, we have to put ourselves in this situation to understand what is going on. Imagine you're in this city and you look out above the walls and you have the the mightiest army on earth about to come in and potentially wipe you out. If they want to have mercy, they may let you live and become a subject under them in in their kingdom. But if they choose to, they can just wipe you out and kill everyone. Merry Christmas. Um... But we have to understand, this is, this is the darkness. This is the darkness. So for us, the question is, when we are feeling external pressures, where do we turn? When we have external threats, where, where do we go? Maybe the events in our world are causing you to have fear and anxiety. Where do you go with that? Maybe you're fearful that you don't have the success in the eyes of other people that you need to have. Maybe you're fearful that you're not beautiful enough. Maybe you're fearful that you don't have enough stuff. You have the grades that you need, but you have the family that you've always dreamed of having. And when you feel these things come up, what do you do with them? God is wanting the Israelites to come to him, but they refuse to do that. So in these circumstances, the Assyrians are the human agent that is causing them distress, but we know from reading this, it's because they have rebelled against a holy and mighty and powerful God. This is why Israel finds themselves where they find it, because the Assyrians are serving God and accomplishing God's purposes. And it even says in verse 22 that as they, as they, they feel the darkness coming, they're in darkness, they feel it coming with the Assyrian army, and they looked at these other things, and verse 22 says the darkness just gets thicker and thicker and thicker the more they look to other things rather than God to save them. So I think before we move into the next few weeks and, and, and that Christmas means everything we needed to, that we want it to mean for us, joy and comfort and love and peace and these kinds of things, we have to understand darkness. We have to. We have to understand the context of the biblical narrative as to how Jesus came into the world. So I want us to, to do that. I want us to think about darkness. I want you to think about the last time that you were in complete and utter darkness. A physical place where it was just dark. Maybe a room, maybe a location without light. And you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. 
I want you to think about that. And what, if you can remember, what feelings did that elicit? Was it fear? Probably a little bit. Disorientation? The directors and writers of, of, of horror movies have made a living and a whole industry on of playing on people's fears of the dark. This is human nature. We have a tendency to be afraid of the dark. That's why we need nightlights, right? Like we want there to be light all the time, even when we sleep sometimes. If you have a nightlight and you're a little bit older, maybe we need to talk, but for your kids to have nightlights, right? So we, we have nightlights, right? So it's natural to be scared of the dark, but also in the dark, it's dangerous. Like you, you run into things if you don't know where you're going. You can get hurt. If you go out and drive with your lights off at night, there's a pretty good chance you're going to hit something. Okay? So thing, you can get hurt in the dark. And some of you maybe this morning need to be uh, um, wakened to the fact that you, you're living in darkness and we're in a dark world. So maybe there's some sobriety that needs to happen for you that the dark is dangerous. And maybe we think that we're living in the light oftentimes, but maybe we're still living in the dark. But also, that also comes with the darkness, what's, what's true about it is that the longer you're in it, the more you get used to it, right? So like the longer you're in darkness, you just kind of get comfortable. You start to maybe kind of be able to feel your way around. You actually can able, you're able, your eyes adjust, you can see better. And it's interesting that it didn't say that the Israelites were in darkness or darkness came over them. It says they walked in darkness. Like they were living in darkness. They were used to the darkness. They had become comfortable with living in the dark. And so some of you maybe need this morning need to, need to, maybe you've gotten comfortable with darkness. Maybe you've made peace with darkness. Maybe that's not your own doing. Maybe it's your circumstances, but Whatever it is, you've made peace with the darkness, and that's not the purpose of God for us, which we'll see in a moment. Those of you who have known us for <coughs> three years or more, we used to have this dog named Winston. Winston was a pug. At age 10, Winston became deaf. At age 12, Winston became blind. Let's just say the last year and a half of Winston's life was kind of a struggle for him. Winston got used, fairly used to, to making it away our house, around our house with these two, these two uh, elements um, hurting him. Um, but he, he kind of figured out a way. But there were times when, when Winston would get stuck somewhere in the house. Okay, And so when we didn't see Winston for a long time, we kind of started worrying because he probably got stuck somewhere. Or we'd hear this little muff, muffled whimper coming from someplace far off in the house, we were like, I think that's Winston. I think he's stuck somewhere again. Um, so here's some, some shots. We, we, we documented this. Um, the toilet's my favorite. That's a tough one, right? Like, like what in the world am I rubbing? What is this? I'm, I, haven't, I don't know what this is. Um, the chair thing, like I don't know how he gets in there, but once he's in, he can't get out. Um, like little jail to him. Um, this is Winston. Bless his heart. Um, it's funny, but here's the deal. We're able to look in at Winston and kind of laugh and kind of feel bad for him because it's like, oh, you just, you just don't know what's best for you. You just don't know 
the direction that you should go. You don't know what would actually bring you safety and security, Winston. You should just come back to your bed. And if we're in darkness, you can imagine if you get some night vision goggles and somebody's peering in on your life and they're watching you fumble around in the darkness. And this could go for all of us. Are we aware that we are in the darkness sometimes? And that we don't, we aren't fully relieved from that darkness yet. Then I don't think any of us would disagree that we, we, that we live in a dark world. We watch the news, we see natural disasters, violence, humans against other humans. We look at our own lives, we see that darkness. If our thoughts and our motives were laid bare for the public to see, we would be afraid of that. Why? Because we all think and our motives are often pretty dark as human beings. That's just the way it is. Here's also the true thing about the dark. The, the, as light comes into a room, the darker the room, the brighter the light shines. It's not, it doesn't really shine brighter, but from our pers- perspective, it actually feels like it's shining brighter. So if Jesus is truly going to be the light of the world, which is what we celebrate for sure this time of year, we have to understand the darkness. If Jesus comes into a, a dimly lit room already or comes into the world at dusk, it's, it's a light, but it's not bright. It doesn't change things. It doesn't grab your attention like light does coming into a pitch black, utter dark place. So we need to feel the world and even in our hearts, the world Jesus came into. So Let's look at Isaiah 9, and let's, let's talk about the good news. Because right after Isaiah 8, he talks in Isaiah 9, uh, verse 1 here. And it's in, the tense structure is interesting, and this is just, as you're reading pro, the, the prophets, obviously they're looking into the future, but he uses past tense. So this can be confused. So imagine Isaiah is in the future as he's writing this, and as God's giving him these words, but he's looking backwards at events that have already happened. But those events are still in the future from who he's communicating with, which is the Israelites. So in verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her, which is God's people, who was in anguish. And continues, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. This is really interesting. I've never noticed this before in this passage because oftentimes we start in verse two when we're just reading this passage. But when kings would come in to conquer Israel, they would start, uh, well, they would, most of those nations in this time came from the north and to the east. So as they were coming down to Jerusalem, which is where they were aiming, they were trying to get down to Jerusalem, they would start in the north. They would start in the north and work their way down. And in two of the areas that were mostly, the, the most northern in, in uh, Israel and Judea at the time were Zebulun and Naphtali. So these places are used to looking over their walls and being the first ones to feel the brunt of a neighboring nation coming in to wipe them out. Like if their army went off and fought and they were looking over the walls to the north, to the east a little bit, and the first thing they saw was their army returning, it's good news. Their armies had some success or at least held off the enemy. But when they look over that wall to the north and to the east, if they, the first thing they see is the opposing army, it's bad news because they've gotten past the army that they sent out. So there's just this, in these places, they're, they're used to looking north and feeling 
the, the, the conquerors come in. But he says, God is kind of saying, you're used to seeing these events. But one day there'll come a person who will also come from the north. And if we remember where Jesus actually started his ministry, he started his ministry in Galilee. It's where he calls the first disciples, which Galilee is in the same area that these two places he mentions are. So he's saying, you're used to seeing destruction come from that direction. But one day you'll get to look over your walls, so to speak, and you'll see the savior of the world coming to bring peace and love and redemption and end the violence. So all that's being communicated just in verse one there. Then we come to verse two, back to the verse that we kind of all know. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a lane of deep darkness on them, a light has shone. He tells them that one day the Messiah will come. He's gonna come, he's gonna make things right. He's gonna be the light all the darkness will go away and he will be your savior. And imagine hearing this when Isaiah says this, like the Syrians are outside their gates and they hear there's a savior coming. There's a Messiah coming. But oftentimes the message that we hear at Christmas is not that. It's not a Messiah is coming. We hear about the human spirit. Be reminded of the human spirit where if we all work together in unity and peace and just love one another and accept one another and work together, we can be the light as humanity. We can be the light. We can make the world a better place. All of our darkness can go away if we as humans can make this world a better place, if we just work together and accept one another and honor one another. But we see this throughout history. The human race consistently forgets that we are not God and we cannot change the world. We can't do that. So the message of Christmas is not, hey, let's get together and have these great feelings and use this as like a springboard to, to love one another better and have more peace and have more love and accept one another. That is not, and, and let's be the ultimate lights for the world. That is not the message of Christmas. If anything, the message of Christmas is a flashing billboard saying, you can't save yourself. So here is the Savior. You're not good enough to save yourself. Here is Jesus. Humanity, you can get together all you want and, 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 and go, go, to go talk to the scholars, go talk to the spiritualists, go talk to the, 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 the self-help gurus and get together and come up with a plan and you still will not save yourself. So here's the one who can save you. Here's the gift, free gift. I'm giving this to the world, says God. Listen to what Tim Keller says in his book, um, The Hidden Christmas. He says this, kind of along these same lines. He says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance, but it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things, are, things really are this bad and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice that it doesn't say from the world, a light has sprung, 
but upon the world a light has dawned. It has come from outside. There's light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us indeed. He is the light. So truly we're going to understand Christmas, and we're going to understand the full meaning of Christmas. Jesus has to be our light. He does. So the question for you is, is Jesus your light? Has he illuminated your life? Has he illuminated your mind and your heart? Has he changed your loves and desires and your wants? And the verses three through five, go with these really quick. Uh, verse three says, this, these are really just talking about the descriptions of what the light is going to look like for the Israelites and for us as the, as the, the prophet looks forward. He says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So verse three, God will increase their joy. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Number two, God will free them for their oppressors. That's what the light's going to do. Verse five, for the every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumults and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God will eventually end all conflict on the earth. And that last one's really looking ahead to when Jesus comes back and puts it into war and to violence. So here we have Isaiah here looking ahead and talking about something that has already happened. God is telling his people to get ready. A redeemer is coming. But here's what we have to realize, and I haven't mentioned this yet, but from the time that God's people are hearing Isaiah say this in chapter 9 to the time of Christ being born, the Messiah, you have 700 years. 700 years. So God didn't save Israel from the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in, they took control, and they conquered, okay? But God still gave them this promise for the future. So what does this tell us? Well, built into the promises of God, especially this one, there's patience required. God's not dealing with hours or days or weeks or months or years or even centuries how we would do that. He's outside of time. Sometimes we'd understand his timing. 700 years past. So built into this, God is asking his people to be a people of patience, waiting, waiting with expectation, waiting with hope for sure, but still you're waiting. Those people weren't alive to experience at least the on earth benefits of Jesus coming as Savior. And I think this time of year, this is the waiting and patience are not two things I think about during Christmas time. I just don't. Like everything speeds up. Everything, more is thrown at us. More is said, hey, do this, do that. And we kind of think it's, hey, it's for the good, which oftentimes it is. But we're still not waiting patiently and expectantly for, um, for God to do something. And the benefit for us is that we live on this side of the, the birth of Jesus. So we're looking back and we see that this has happened. So we can say we're in a better place than the Israelites were in Isaiah's time. This is history for us. So how do, what are we waiting for with expectation? What are we, what are we to be patient for? And I think this is the second coming of Jesus. It's, it's been you know, 2,000 years since the birth of Christ, and we're waiting. 
and we still wait. We should wait with, with longing and with expectation and with hope. So when we think of hope this Christmas, we need to let our minds go to the second coming of Christ. And as the Israelites were waiting for the first coming of Christ, we are awaiting the second coming or advent or arrival of Christ. So yes, we begin knowing the gospel and, and joyfully trusting and resting in the gospel and all that the first coming of Jesus started, the birth and his death and his resurrection and his ascension his ascending and his sending of the spirit, all of those things, we, they are history for us and we benefit from those things. And if we have faith in Jesus and what he has done, then we are saved. We are reconciled to God. So we can rest in that. But we also have this opportunity to wait. Theologians have called this the already but not yet phase of our existence. Christ has come. He saved those who have faith in him, but he has not returned to set up the new heavens and the new earth yet. Christ meets us with joy and with love in the first advent, but he gives us comfort and hope in awaiting the second advent. And so we have this interesting um, opportunity, I think, during this time of year to rejoice, but yet to wait. To like have the benefits of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, but not the fullness of Jesus' return. So it should cause us to long and to wait and to hope and to pray that Jesus would return quickly. Because on the one end, we've, if you're a Christian in here, you've experienced the good news and that should bring you joy and freedom and, 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 and you should celebrate that but then we have, have to ask ourselves questions like, if Jesus has come, then why, you know, how, how do we deal with oh, you know, 100-ish people losing their lives in California wildfires in the last month? Or tsunamis in the last year? Or hurricanes in the last year? <clears throat> why, still schools, why still shootings, public shootings, where humans are uh, killing other humans, which just seems senseless? Like, if Jesus has come, why is that person still hurting me? And why is the, that person who hurt me, is, it's causing bitterness in my life. It doesn't seem like it's causing, giving me freedom and joy. It's giving me bitterness. Or that secret thing you've been hiding from everyone that's just eating away at your freedom and joy and hope. And we know that's the world we live in. So there's our, this already, but then there's this not yet. We long, we wait. We hope for Jesus to return. So for this first week of Advent, as we end, I want to throw out a few practical things I think we can do. Think about this first week. Next week, we're going to get more into who Jesus is and what he has done and look at uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6, which you have these labels for Jesus, these titles that are given to Jesus. We're going to dig into those starting next week. But I want for this week to make sure that we put our place we put ourselves in the place of Isaiah's hearers, that we um, wait and we long for something. We wait patiently for something. We push against what our culture is telling us to go get it now, go get it soon, go get what you want right now. It's Christmas, go get it, go get it all. No, we, as followers of Jesus, we are in this unique opportunity. No, that stuff's not going to get me where I really wanna go. The second return will, so I'm gonna wait. I'm going to reflect on the first coming and what all the benefits that has given us, but I'm also going to long for the second coming. So number one, carve out time to spend with Jesus. Well, hopefully we're doing that already, but I would say preemptively, thinking through the next three to four weeks, um, plan. 
What are you going to do? Things are going to get stressful and busy, and schedules are going to get full. Find an Advent guide. We've, we've, we've done another one this year. You can find that, I believe, online. And I saw it on our fa- a link to it on our Facebook page for sure this week. Um, so go there and start. You're, you're not too late. Okay? You can start and pick up. It doesn't, you don't have to start at the beginning. Or you can start at the beginning and catch up. It doesn't matter if, if you've missed a couple of days. Just jump into that. Do something that's going to force you into a place where you're thinking about Jesus, at least for the next few weeks. It's good for your heart. It's good, it allows you to reflect on Jesus. Number two, allow the traditions to cause you to think about Jesus. Like when you see a tree, so most of you, you maybe put up trees, college students, I don't know, that was always a weird thing for me when I was in college. I don't know if you put up a tree or you don't, but those of you with trees, you're going to be sitting probably close to a tree when you're at home and you, you're going to see that tree a lot. Remember that Jesus was hung on a tree when he was crucified, the scripture says. That tree is an evergreen tree, which uh, unique amongst most trees, it stays green all year round. You can think of eternity. You can think of um, everlasting when you think of evergreen. The lights on a tree. Shut off all the lights in your house. Let those lights do their thing. The light of the world. Okay, the ornaments that shimmer. Light of the world. The gifts under the tree represent the ultimate gift that we've been given in Jesus. So just because we're Christians, we don't have to like remove ourselves from all of the traditions. Just redeem the traditions to cause us to think about the one that we should be celebrating. And the third thing is that I think flows out of the first two, that if, we are, if our minds are focused on Jesus and not on us and not on, hey, I, you know, we can kind of say, hey, I, I'm buying gifts for all these people. That's, that's awesome if the ultimate motivation is that these people would experience joy and happiness. But oftentimes it's stressful because we're actually using those gifts to make sure those people like us. I want to be loved and accepted by this person. So I'm going to really stress out about what I get them because that may determine whether they like me or not. Okay, that doesn't, that doesn't bring freedom and joy. Okay, so let our, our dwelling on Jesus cause us to take our focus off ourselves and put it on other people. Like if, if we're struggling with the world right now as Christians, think about all the pain and suffering and heartache that's going on in the world right now. One pastor, as I was reading this week, said, um, he was kind of being creative here with how he, how he said this, but he says, we should be hope dealers. We should be sellers of hope. As people come into contact with us, they should feel hope radiating from us because we should be the most hopeful people. We can rejoice in what's happened, but we can be, and we can be hopeful for the future. And that is a unique position for a human being in our day and age to be, to be thankful for the past and, and, and be waiting for the future. So let's be lights. Let's go out from here and be the kind of people that provide hope for the people we come in contact with um, during this season. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for, once again, your son and everything that means for us. Just pray that we would not get caught up in the cultural rat race that has already started for many of us. Even though we talk about Jesus all year round, and this isn't the only time we talk about Jesus, there is a reason that we have this on the calendar. There's a reason that our senses should be heightened to the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus during this season. So I pray that you would help us. We need you. We, 
we, we are, our, our thoughts wander. Our hearts stray from you during this time of year. And it's hard, so we need your help. As we move into a time of communion, I pray we can humble ourselves and the very act of communion would make us remember that we can't do this ourselves. We can't consult things and people outside of God to, to bring us true joy and hope and peace. So help us remember that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.